And I've even been on the junior-senior trip to Boston eight times, and I'm still not a junior or senior. <laughs> well, moving forward, uh, but all of this is about me and how the world thinks of me. But this isn't what Christ thinks of me. Christ has to make all the difference in my life. Uh, being a Christian is not about us, it's about Christ. It's not about what we've done, it's about what he did. Let's read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked the following course of this world, following the prince of power, the heir of the spirit, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the uh, passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. Uh, and you were children by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But, you, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you, us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. In Christ and, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not your uh, result of works. Uh, no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand uh, that we should walk in them. What I want us to help to see this morning uh, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is the difference Christ makes in our life. Uh, so we really understand what it means to be a Christian, so it's not just your name like me and Christian Davis. The first difference Christ makes in our life is he takes us from being dead to alive. Look at me with Ephesians 2, 1. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins, The Bible teaches us that we are dead spiritually. What causes us to be dead spiritually is sin. God told Adam and Eve that if they disobeyed his word by eating of the tree of good and knowledge, they would surely die. And it wasn't just Adam and Eve that died, but Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, which was Adam, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Because of our sin, because of our sin, we are at a state of spiritual death. We have flatlined. We are unable to do anything to have a relationship with Christ. This is different than how many of us come to think about our spiritual life. Many of us think, come to Sunday morning thinking that all we need is a little jump start. We need a little extra Jesus juice to help us stay on the good path. But a dead person has nothing to add, nothing they can do, nothing to contribute, 
Christ has to make all the difference, and he does. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. Have you ever considered why, what kind of life Christ has? Well, Christ has eternal life. So Ephesians 2.5 tells us that we, that we can have eternal life because we are made alive together with Christ. So what does together with Christ mean? Well, it means that we walk hand in hand or have cooperation with him. Listen, uh, listen to 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also Christ shall be made alive. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, and that is what Adam gave us, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ makes us alive if we truly believe in him. The second difference Christ makes in our life is he takes us from being children under God's wrath to being seated next to him in the heavenly places. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 3. Among whom we all once lived uh, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We carry out the desires of our sinful ways in our mind and body because we are children of wrath by nature. All of us have had that feeling of guilt when, you know, that time that you disobeyed your parents and your whole body language changed from the normal tearful you uh, to the stage that you know, oh man, I'm in trouble. You've just broken a rule, you've hurt someone, you've hurt your parents, and your sin brings shame, rejection, and their wrath upon you. Just as we all have hurt our parents, we have all sinned and brought the wrath of God upon us. But John 3.36 summarizes this by saying, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Did you catch that? The wrath of God remains on him. Without the difference Christ makes, the wrath of God uh, remains on us. So let's see the difference Christ makes in Ephesians 2.6. Let's read. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, in Christ Jesus. We, we were children of wrath from the first time we have sinned. But Ephesians 2.6 tells us, now that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. So what does seated tell us? Well, it tells us that all the sin that we do cannot measure up toward his love towards us. Let's read Ephesians 2.7. So that in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. His love takes us from wrath to favor. Look at where we are seated and who we are seated next to. 
Verse 6 tells us that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. It tells us in Colossians 3.1 that if you have been raised with Christ, you will be seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, there is something significant about uh, what seated or versus standing tell us. Have you ever wondered why we are seated, not standing? Well, if we were uh, standing, we would still be working, but Christ already did all the work that needed to be done by dying on the cross for all of us. Christ makes all the difference. He raised us and he seated us next to him. The final difference Christ makes in our life is he, that he takes us from walking the world's course unto destruction to walking unto Christ's course unto good works. Let's see what our lifestyle was like before Christ. Let's read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked the following course of this world, following the prince of power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our mind and body, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Before Christ, we were all heading down the path under destruction, in bondage and sin. But then Christ came into your life, or he came into my life, and showed me Christ. I like the new praise song called Into Marvelous Light, like, uh, based on 1 Peter 2.9. Let's read 1 Peter 2.9, if you guys could flip there, please. First Peter 2.9 tells us, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim his excellencies, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christ brings us out of the darkness into light, so that we may proclaim his excellencies. This is another way of saying Ephesians 2.10. I'll just read it. I won't let you. I won't have you guys flip. For by grace, uh, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christ has to make all the difference in our life so we can live a new life as new creatures Walking in good works. Let's read 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is a new creation, therefore, if anyone is a new, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So what? How does this apply to us as believers? Well, you need to ask yourself, has Christ made all the difference in your life? 
The only way that Christ can make the difference in your life is if he makes all the difference in your life. The world thinks that you can work your way to heaven, but God says that you have to put your faith in him and that he is the only way to heaven. We cannot earn our way either. It comes back to faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have been saved by grace through faith, as Ephesians 2.8 tells us. Would you place your faith in Christ today? Do you want to receive this gift? Think of the different ways Christ makes in your life, from dead to alive, from under his wrath to beside him in the heavenly places, from wrath to favor, under bondage to sin to a new creation. May Christ be all the difference in your life as he has been in my life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this uh, wonderful day that you gave us. Thank you that uh, you have to make all the difference in our life. Help us all to put our faith and trust in you. Uh, we pray as uh, Josh comes up after the hymn that uh, you would guide him and protect him while he is speaking your word. In your name, amen. All right. So let's start with prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to serve you today. I thank you that though I am weak and a broken vessel, you use me. Nothing is more satisfying than furthering an eternal mission, something that you started 2,000 years ago, and which is our purpose as your slaves to fulfill. Even as just a tiny cell in your amazing body, you still care for us and are with us always. Teach us from your word today. Let the words that I speak be yours. May they reflect you in all ways. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in New England, sports are a big thing. We have many great teams, some of the best in the world, the Patriots, the Celtics, and the Bruins. I think the biggest sporting event, though, is the, it has to be the Olympics. I'm sure some of you watched the Winter Olympics this past year. I think it's one of the best ways to see all the athletes perform from around the world. But as I watched this year, I noticed something that didn't stick out to me before. And that's what they are praising by doing the athletics and what the world wants us to see, and that is physical strength. Today, more than ever, the world is pressuring us to be strong in ourselves. Independence has taken the place of reliance on the Lord for strength. Wealth, prosperity, and peace have made us proud. We believe the false notion that the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar once accepted is true in Daniel 4. 30, when he said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Here's a man who is on the highest podium in terms of power, and he believes it is the result of his own doing. Yet the Lord does not appreciate this. If we look at Daniel 4, 30 through 32, we see how the Lord replies, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. 
the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. We are just like Nebuchadnezzar. Our culture tells us the same lies like, we worked for this. We worked hard for our families. We should deserve praise. We deserve praise for being the best student in the class. Yet Nebuchadnezzar's beliefs and his own strength led God to expose his weakness. God took action against the king, and all his material and fame and glory vanished in a second. After being humbled, Nebuchadnezzar concludes in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his ways are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. As believers, we must fight the world's agenda of independence and replace it with reliance, for if you won't humble yourself and the Lord Almighty, then he will humble you. This morning, I want us to take a step backward from independence in order to take a step forward in radical reliance so that we can experience the awesome mystery of Christ's strength made perfect in weakness. So what actions should we take to prepare ourselves to work in Christ's strength alone? Well, the evidence lays nestled in in the pages of Scripture. Strength in weakness is a common theme throughout the biblical narrative, not only of being strong in the Lord, but how it is only achieved by being weak in ourselves. Let's take a look at some examples in both the Old and New Testaments that testify to the greatness and necessity of weakness. Our first example is Abraham and Sarah. Let's turn to Genesis 15.3. It's page 10 in your pew Bible. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said, So shall your offspring be. Okay, we have an 86-year-old man with a 76-year-old wife. How is God going to fulfill his promise? Well, at first, Sarah tried to solve the problem in her own power. She had Abraham go into her maidservant, who bears a child. Yet when matters are performed using human power, the consequences are fruitless. Abram's first son, Ishmael, would go to father the Arab nations, who are constantly warring against God's people, even to this day. Fast forward 13 years, and the Lord has still not provided an heir. Abraham is now 99 years old. Nevertheless, God spoke to Abraham again and told him how Sarah would produce a child. In Genesis 17, 17, we see Abraham's response. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? 
Abraham's not crazy in the eyes of the world, for even Hebrews 11:12 calls him good as dead at this age. Yet Sarah does bear him a son, Isaac, and God's promise is fulfilled. In impossible situations, God's power shines brightest as God's strength is made perfect in Abraham and Sarah's weakness. Jumping down to the book of Exodus, we witness another man who triumphed when he was weak. Moses was an Israelite who was raised as an Egyptian prince. Let's read Exodus 2.11. It's page 45 in your pew Bible. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Moses wished to help his fellow Israelites, but by using his own physical strength, he only made matters worse. Looking at verse 15, it says that when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Now a foreigner in the land of Midian and banished from Egypt, it appeared that he was worthless in terms of helping the Israelites. In addition, scripture says that he was slow of speech and tongue in Exodus 4.10. He surely believed himself inadequate to serve the almighty God of his fathers. Yet at 80 years of age, God used him to lead his people out of bondage. And in the end, he is another hero of the faith mentioned among the greats in Hebrews 11. Amidst the prolific sin in the times of the judges, we witness the opposite response of that of the patriarchs. Let's look at Judges 15.15. 15. It's on page 215 in your pew Bible. Speaking of Samson, it says, And then he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put it in his hand, and took it, and with it struck a thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. In this passage, we see Samson, who is undoubtedly strong, use his strength to win the battle. But Samson's lack of wisdom and purity outweighed his impressive physical strength. Yet God was not done with Samson. After Samson lived for his own pleasures and fell under the seduction of Delilah, the Philistines finally caught up to him. Looking at Judges 16.21, it says that the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Yet in his weakness, as practically a circus spectacle to the Philistines, he was the strongest. Looking at verse 29, it says, And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and all the people who were in it. And so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those who he killed during his entire life. God's power through weakness is astounding, as 
the triumphant Philistines lost against God's power through his weak servant. Moving along, the time of the kings presents another contrast between weakness and strength, namely between David and Saul. Let's turn over to 1 Samuel 9.2. It's on page 231. Verse 1 talks about a man whose name was Kish, a man of great wealth. Verse 2 says, And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. It is clear that Saul is a great man in the eyes of the world. He is wealthy, tall, and handsome. Don't you just admire those type of characteristics? Yet this does not solve his spiritual condition. After becoming king of Israel, Saul quickly starts to rely on his own strength. In chapter 15, after Saul is commanded to kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, he decides to spare the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice. Because he took matters into his own hands, the judge Samuel rebukes him, and the Lord rejects him as king. The very next chapter, therefore, God chooses a new king, David. Unlike Saul, however, David is not rich or tall. After Samuel looked at Jesse's eldest son, when he was choosing a king, he exclaimed in 1 Samuel 16, 6, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David, among the lowest of low as a shepherd, and the youngest in his family, was chosen by God to raise to the highest standing in the land. Even though he was young, inexperienced, and small, he was strong in the Lord through his weakness and defeated Goliath without a problem. David and Saul are one of the best examples of contrasting figures of physical strength and weakness in the Bible. But there is an ultimate example. Jesus taught a radical type of submission and weakness. He taught that the first shall be last in Matthew 20:16. He taught that we should come to him as children in Matthew 19:14. The Sermon on the Mount mentions that blessing goes to the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, not the rich, happy, and prideful. In a similarly revolutionary way, Christ taught that his disciples were not to be rulers, but to be servants. James and John wanted to sit at his right and left hands, but Christ pointed them to victory and humility, saying multiple times that he who wishes to be first must be servant of all. But Jesus did not just teach weakness and humility. He modeled weakness and humility for coming generations. Indeed, Jesus brought weakness to a whole new level, ultimately highlighted by his death on the cross. Let's turn to Philippians 2, 6. It's page 980 in the Pew Bible. 
Philippians 2, 6. It says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And he found, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the central theme of Paul's letter, and it ought to be at the forefront of Christian thinking. Through Christ's weakness, he conquered death once and for all, so that many were made strong through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because of what Christ has done, Christians can follow in his steps. We share in his death by taking up our crosses daily, that we may share in his life, as it says in Romans 6.4. Still, we want power to avoid being weak, but Christ offers us power through our weakness. In the Apostle Paul's life, we see an example of accepting weakness as a gateway to strength. In the life of the Apostle Paul, God uses something that most would consider unfortunate in order to produce stronger faith in his servant. In 2 Corinthians 12, 5-8, we see how God has given Paul a thorn in his flesh so he doesn't grow arrogant about receiving great revelations. To the non-believer, it would appear that Paul has just hit a stretch of bad luck here. Indeed, Satan means for this thorn to produce a lack of faith in Paul and to distract him from his goal of serving Christ. Yet God meant this so that Paul would rely more on him. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Second Corinthians 12, 9 says, and God speaks to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my, per- my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because Paul realizes that Christ's power will, not re- will rest upon him, or more literally, pitch his tent in him, He is willing to bear with his shameful weakness. Would you respond this way if you were in Paul's place? Do you count your weaknesses as joy? Like Paul, grace comes more fully, and faith increases as a result of the realization of our faults. If you feel inadequate to serve the Almighty God, you are in the right place. Weakness and inadequacy is the common link between all the biblical characters we have discussed, and their strength of faith and character resulted from being equipped with something that was greater than themselves. We must take a step back to go ahead. By coming to the end of our own strength, Christians may make God's power perfect in us through weakness.